Hello and welcome to our London History Podcast, where we share our love of London, its people, places and history. This podcast is designed for you to learn things about London that most Londoners don't even know, all in 20 minutes. I am your host, Hazel Baker, qualified London tour guide and CEO of londonguidedwalks.co.uk. And I am absolutely thrilled to be able to say that our guided walks and our private tours are now bookable online for 2021 and 2022. We also have self-guided tours available and treasure hunts for you to do all on your mobile phone on the streets of London. And if you're a little bit further away from us, then you can do a virtual guided tour, the pay and play. And also we have a virtual escape room called Find the Phoenix. Get that cup of tea, put your feet up and enjoy. Today we're going to be talking about the famous Black London Cab, a celebrated icon of London life which are relied upon by millions of travellers, tourists and Londoners alike. There are around 21,000 London cabs, officially called hackney carriages. They are the only licensed taxis which can pick up passengers on the street without pre-booking. The modern-day black cab is the descendant of the horse-drawn hackney carriage, which began providing a taxicab service in London in the early 17th century. The first example of taxicab regulation in London was in 1636 during the reign of Charles I, where the number of carriages was set to a maximum of 50. The now-defunct Corporation of Coachmen received their charter, permission to apply for hire in London, back in 1639. The Commissioners of Scotland Yard began regulating hackney carriages after 1662 during the reign of Charles II. Whenever you arrive at any airport, first see the taxi rank. But where was London's first taxi rank? According to the London Vintage Taxi Association, the first taxi cab stand was formed in 1634 outside the Maypole in the Strand, basically between where Somerset House and Mary Lestrand Church is nowadays. Captain John Bailey was a veteran of one of Sir Walter Riley's expeditions and he managed a taxi rank of four horse-drawn carriages available for hire from the Strand. Bailey's cabmen wore a distinctive livery and charged customers a fixed rate depending on distance. The idea caught on and by the 1760s there were at least a thousand hackney hell carts as they were so not lovingly called clattering down London's busier than ever streets. Why are black cabs called hackney cabs I hear you ask? The name cab derives from the French cabriolet, the popular style of carriage in the early 19th century. It was a two-wheeled French-style cabriolet which had an exposed seat on the top and they were known for their speed and comfort and they eventually replaced the heavier and more cumbersome hackney carriages for the rest of the century. By the 1830s, the word cab entered the Londoner's vocabulary. But where does the word hackney come from? Is it related to the area of hackney? The short answer is no. It's related to the horse. 
It's believed the name comes from hackinet, the French term for a general purpose horse. It literally means ambling nag. I'm sure we have a few horse loving listeners. The hackney horse is also a breed. The breed that we know now was developed in the 18th century by crossing thoroughbreds with the Norfolk Trotter, a large-sized trotting harness horse. And the first hackney horse is said to be Le Shale's horse, which was foaled in 1760. The drivers of Victorian London's horse-drawn hansom cabs were constantly exposed to the elements. They were prohibited by law from leaving the rank whilst waiting for custom and expected to sit on the box. If you were a cab driver, stopping to go to the toilet or grab some food was problematic. Even with the risk of a hefty fine, many cab drivers were drawn to the warmth and comfort of a pub between jobs, which then led them to drink more than is good for their health or behaviour, as reported in the Illustrated London News 1875. On a particular snowy night of that year, Captain Armstrong, editor of The Globe, wanted a cab to take him from his home to his offices in Fleet Street. As usual, he sent his servant round to the cab stand to fetch him one. Although there were cabs, there were no cab drivers. Upon further investigation, the servant found them in a pub, sheltering from the storm. The servant considered them far too drunk to drive his master, and so returned to the captain's home without a cab. This gave Captain Armstrong an idea. Within a month, Armstrong had teamed up with a group of like-minded philanthropic worthies, including the 7th Earl of Shaftesbury, and started the Cabmen's Shelter Fund. London wasn't the first British city to create shelters for their cabmen. Birmingham were already doing it, and there were plans for a cabmen's room in the newly built Kingston train station, with also enough room for their horses. In an article in Lloyd's Weekly newspaper in 1874, it describes how a cab driver trying to keep warm in London's wet winters had to choose between waiting out of doors with his blue fingers to his lips or his arms flapping against the breast of his greatcoat or else he must go into a public house and pay for the privilege of warming himself by buying something to drink that he does not want. Before the end of the month, an article in the London Evening Standard reported that a charity was formed and already appealing to the public for donations. The Cabmen's Shelter Fund's purpose was to supply London cabmen when in the job with a place to shelter where they could get some wholesome refreshments at very moderate prices. The proposed design would be 17 feet long by 6 feet wide and ten and a half feet tall, leaving just enough room inside for ten or thirteen very skinny men. There were railings to tie the horses to, and they'd have facilities for cooking and water. The London Evening Standard reported that the cost per shelter would be £75, including gas and water facilities. However, other sources have found saying the building costs would be as much as £200. 
By the end of 1875, at least 21 shelters, all painted the same hunter green with black roofs and trims, were up and about on the streets of London. They were serving hot tea and coffee, sausages, bread and butter and the like. The initial donations were designed to pay for the initial outlay, but the cabbie shelters were expected to be self-sufficient within the first few months of opening. Each shelter had tables and chairs for patrons to use. Horses could be tied to the bar, running along the edge of the shelter, under the watchful gaze of the cabman, and someone else inside making warm food. The founding philanthropists often provided reading material, such as newspapers like Armstrong's Globe and books. The subscription fee to use the shelters was minimal, no more than six pence a week, and once paid, it allowed cabbies to patronise every shelter in the city. The Victorian cab drivers were expected to maintain a standard code of conduct. They were prohibited from gambling or playing cards, and in some shelters they were asked not to discuss politics. Even though one of the main benefits of the shelters were for the cabmen to take refuge from the unforgiving elements, it was also convenient for the customers, the aristocracy, so they wouldn't have to wait for a cab. By December 1903, there were 45 cabmen's shelters scattered across London, serving some 4,000 cabmen every single day. Although the project clearing worked, it wasn't quite the self-perpetuating scheme the funds creators had hoped for. Summer months, for example, when the weather was fine, some shelters even lost money and the fund lamented. It is a matter of regret that the work should be carried on under the disadvantage of insufficient income. However, the number of cabmen's shelters continued to rise, although it's unclear exactly how many there were at the height of their popularity. Some figures show 61. One cab driver I spoke to said the number was over 100. What we do know is that between 1890 and 1911, the focus had shifted towards upkeep and repair of existing shelters, and consequently only seven new shelters were built over the period. London's crowded streets would change in a way that would eventually doom the shelters. In 1903, the first gas-powered motor cars, French imports, took to the road. Over the next 15 years, the motor car taxi trade grew. The name taxi comes from the taximeter, the device that measured the distance the vehicle travelled. Many horses were requisitioned during World War I. The motor car dominated the cab trade and the need for cabmen's shelters were necessarily decreased. The last horse cab on London streets was taken out of service in 1947. There are a number of differently designed cabmen's shelters as several architects have been involved in the project over the years. A lost example of an ornate double-tiered shelter with decorative finials once stood outside the law courts on the Strand. There are currently only 13 cabmen shelters in existence. 12 of them are still in operation. In the early 1990s, the Heritage of London Trust helped the Cabbie Shelter Fund to refurbish seven of these shelters. 
If you don't know what cabbie shelters are, then they're these small green cricket pavilion style sheds dotted around London. And I've added some photos uh, on the episode show notes and you can see those at londonguidedwalks.co.uk forward slash podcast and then just click on episode 56. If you are planning to come into London to have a little look around yourself, then I have put together a map for you to see their exact locations and you can save it and share it to your phone and it'll give you directions of how to get to the next one. Uh, So you can see that all on the show notes as well. I'm sure you're wondering why on earth you would think of going round and having a look at these cabbie shelters. Well, A, they're part of our history, but also you can get a decent cuppa and a bacon sarnie as well at affordable prices. Now, you can't go inside one of these cabbie shelters. They're specifically reserved for the black cab drivers, those who have completed the knowledge. But these shelters do offer a takeaway service. So a cup of tea, for example, costs you a pound. A bacon sarnie will cost you no more than a couple of quid. And don't forget the red sauce. And at some shelters, you can even get a salted beef bagel and a cup of tea for a fiver. All in keeping with the cabbie shelter fund's promise of good grub at decent rates. And don't forget that all of the shelters that you will see now are grade two listed. It's perhaps the Embankment Place cabbie shelter that many of you may have seen before. It's on the corner of the Embankment and Northumberland Avenue and is a stone's throw from the Playhouse Theatre. It was in 1881, following a competition, that Maximilian Clark was appointed to design a shelter for Northumberland Avenue. The key features of the design included a steeply pitched hipped roof, overhanging eaves with exposed rafters and decorative fretwork panels integrated into the main timber frame, which featured ribboned garlands of the CSF monogram. This particular shelter was in fact replaced in 1915. But if you go there, then look around because you'll notice that Northumberland Avenue is rather unusually wide for a London road. This area had once been the London home for the Dukes of Northumberland, overlooking the Thames. But a fire in 1866 caused considerable damage to the property. And that's when the Metropolitan Board of Works offered to buy it. And that's when the Duke jumped at the chance. In mid-Victorian London, planning permission for hotels was set for them to be no taller than the width of the road they stood on. And since the plan was to build some of London's largest and grandest hotels here, the short road is unusually wide. The cabbie shelter that isn't in use is the one on Chelsea Embankment, which overlooks the Albert Bridge. And so, well, it must have one of the most romantic locations for what is basically a greasy spoon. Its nickname is The Pier as it's close to Cadogan Pier. But in the 1970s, its nickname was the Kremlin, as it was known for hosting left-wing cabbies. When I went past the one in Hanover Square, um, I noticed it was covered in protective railings, so I'm not quite sure what's happening with that one at the moment. The benefit, though, is that you can take your time to look at some of the detailing. So I've already mentioned that you can see 
the CSF monogram in some of the detailing and I've taken some photos of that as well. But also if you have a look on some of the doors, the locks of them, you will actually see there is a little symbol of three legs. Normally, this is something, a symbol that you would associate with the Isle of Man, not London. So what's it doing here? Well, it's all to do with J. Leg and Co. Locks. It's founded by Joseph Legg in 1881 when he was uh, just 20. And he went on holiday to the Isle of Man and uh, he absolutely fell in love with this, uh, this symbol. And so he was so struck by it that he was determined to adopt it um, as a trademark. And of course, that had uh, particular problems, but he did secure the permission. And so the three-legged symbol is still used today by the company. And uh, it was originally used as a symbol for his three sons who were actively engaged in the business. You might be wondering why cabbie shelters are green and that's a very good question. There's no definitive answer. However, I do have a theory and if you've listened to episode 33, London's Pillar Boxes, then you might also come up with the same one and that is, well, London's Pillar Boxes were originally green but were later changed to an easier to notice colour, the red that we see now. Now, However, these shelters weren't for everyone. So perhaps the green colour was more appropriate, easily to identify for those looking for them and appropriately camouflaged enough for those who aren't. And it's amazing, really. Um, even on tours, I point a cabbie shelter out and people who are familiar with London may not have even noticed them. My favourite cabbie shelter... I think is the one on Russell Square simply because there's plenty of space and seating so you can sit down and eat. Um, it might also be that on the other side of Russell Square there is a phone box crammed with tiramisu. Yes, you heard me right. It's called Walk Misu. I kid you not. And uh, you can buy a tiramisu there and have that in Russell Square. And oh, yes, don't forget to try their pistachio one. Another convenient one, if you're going to the Science Museum or the Natural History Museum or the V&A, and that's the one on Thurlow Place. So nice and easy to get to. And especially now that Exhibition Road has been pedestrianised, there's more chance of you finding a seat so you can enjoy your food. As I said, I'll put the map in the show notes so you can save that and add that to your, your phone and you can explore as you will. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for supporting our podcast. We are now in the top 2.5% of podcasts listened to globally, which is really quite amazing. If you're able to financially support the podcast, that means that we keep the advertisers at bay and you get 20 minutes of quality, unique content, then please do so. You can do that by becoming a patron for as little as £5 and that means you get even more unique content. You get videos and behind the scene pictures and that, things that I am not able to cram into the show notes, which for you are completely free. Any support is very much appreciated. Well, I hope you enjoyed that one and I'll see you next week.